0: Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. Each week, you will encounter me, Daniel Gundlach, as your host, guiding you along a magical route that will bring us closer to the voices of those singers that most enchant and transform us, no matter what else is going on in the world. Thank you for joining me on that path. this week's episode. Hello, listeners. Today, December 2nd, 2023, we celebrate the 100th birthday of Maria Callas. I have quite a bit to say about her, but before the episode starts, I just want to make two observations. One can only speak of the complicated legacy of a mass murderer and war criminal when one is a member of a society that has lost its moral compass. And number two, though we may not choose to see it that way, in issues surrounding the current climate crisis and, indeed, the state of the world in general, we are all sadly implicated. There's no way around this. Okay, let's set my potentially controversial opinions on world matters aside, and consider instead my opinions on the great Maria Callas. (laughs) I love that Callas is still being celebrated today. And by the way, what we just heard was a brief excerpt of her Anon Junge from her legendary performance in Cologne of La Sonnambula* with La Scala on tour. That's from the 4th of July, 1957. I'm thrilled that people are still so fascinated by Callas. Sometimes I worry that they're fascinated about her for reasons that, to me, are not all that important. Yes, of course she was a style icon, and that's very important. Much less important to me is all of the kerfuffle that surrounded her personal life. To me, Maria was a servant of art and of music, such as we have rarely seen since perhaps the days of Santa Cecilia. I have lots to say about her, I'll probably keep much of it to myself because I really want to mostly share the voice of Callas with you today. These will consist of, I believe, entirely live performances. And there's a reason for that, because Kalas is best represented, in my opinion, by her live performances. Her studio recordings are magnificent. I turn to them and return to them again and again. But there's something to be said for the thrill of hearing Callas live. One of her most enduring recorded documents is the so-called Dallas Rehearsal, which took place on the 20th of November, 1957. It was a mammoth concert that she was planning down there, and in this brief excerpt, we hear her and Pepita, who I believe is Nicola Richinho, the conductor, whom she greets at the beginning of the excerpt, singing Qui la voce sua soave from i Puritani, a role that she sang not frequently, but at key moments in her career. Her performance and recordings of this role are central to the Calas legend and the Calas legacy. Puritani. I almost considered calling this episode The Power of the Trill. Nobody sang ornamentation with more expression than did Maria Callas, and she attributes this primarily to her mentor, the conductor Tullio Serafine. But if Callas herself had not had that divine fire, that divine spark, that genius—and I use that term quite intentionally she would not have been able to transmute what seraphine was imparting to her to the revolutionary degree that she did callas came in contact with most of the great conductors of her era and though she did not perform with him we have photos of her with Arturo Toscanini for beginners in rehearsal at La Scala, and I believe those were rehearsals for her legendary performance of Lady Macbeth in 1952. In the live recording from La Scala of that opera, she's led by another conducting giant, Victor de Sabata, who's also the conductor of her Tosca recording that many people hold up as the greatest recording in the history of recorded opera. Callas rarely sang Macbeth. She was supposed to sing it at the Met before Rudolf Bing fired her ignominiously, one might add, at least in my opinion, in 1958. But she did record and often perform in operatic recital the sleepwalking scene from Macbeth. Now, I have always approached this live recording with De Sabata with more than a grain of salt, because it seemed to me, at least on first listen, and fifth listen, and twentieth listen even, that he takes a tempo that is ridiculously fast, that gets in the way of Maria being able to really express all that there is in Lady Macbeth's guilt-ridden mad scene. But when I've listened to it this last week, I realized, no, in spite of this tempo, she still manages to summon a woman, yes, guilt-ridden, but also cajoling, certainly ambitious. Also, perhaps, evil, all within the context of walking in her sleep. The way that she imposes a languor over the entire scene, in spite of the very rapid tempo, is so extraordinary. And also, I mean, this being December 1952, she is at her absolute vocal peak.
1: Uh mm-hmm.
0: For me, the great Callas role is La Traviata. I love many of Callas' roles. I love her Norma. I love her Lucia. I love her Medea. I love her Tosca. I love them all. But there's something about her Violetta She sang a relatively limited number of traviatas over the course of her career, but it was one of her most important roles nonetheless. One of the last, and for me possibly the greatest one, was when she sang it at Covent Garden in June 1958. Thank God we have these live documents. There are a few that uh, have disappeared into the ether, and every so often something new will appear on the horizon. But this Violetta, in spite of what some people call her relative vocal frailty on this outing, represents her... Oh my god. Well, I don't even want to say it represents her at her best, because that's what I'm offering today. Calas at her best. Sometimes my choices are controversial, but not this one. I don't think anyone can argue with this. This is the Parigio-Cara duet from the final act, which leads into the absolutely heart-wrenching cry from the heart Grandio morir si giovane! as Violetta realizes that, in spite of Alfredo's return, she's not going to survive. Her Alfredo, on this occasion, is the Italian tenor Cesare Valletti. I did a special Valletti episode earlier this year. I don't think I've ever heard him sound more passionate. And there is, like with Callas herself, a tear in his voice that tears at the heart. Yes, she is joined here on the podium by her great colleague Nicola Rescigno. I promised myself I wasn't going to start crying while I was doing this narration, so I'd better just play this. <laughs>
1: Confessor, i la you know. I'll let tu mi sarai Tutto il futuro
0: I should probably talk a little bit about my first encounters with the voice of Maria Callas. So let's see. I was a very unhappy, closeted, gay teenager. We had just moved to a new town, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I would go to the Oshkosh Public Library, and I was listening through the entire opera and classical vocal collection there. And toward the beginning of my listening summer, which I guess I would have been probably about 15 or 16 years old, we got to be for Bellini, and lo and behold, there was Norma. And it was the Seraphim reissue of the first Callas studio recording. And I took it home. You know, my first impressions of Kalas were not all that positive, and it was not because of the voice. In fact, my initial impressions were based entirely on all the ridiculous coverage that she received in the press. Coverage that had nothing to do with her singing. People were really nasty about her, and it was always some gossipy thing, and it really didn't interest me. So I just assumed that she was going to be some big, phony pretender. And when I got home and put those three records on the turntable, I had a very, well, frankly, negative reaction. I just thought... What is this? This is one of the ugliest voices I have ever heard. It's wobbly, and it's not... I don't know, it just sounds like there's something wrong with the record itself. In fact, I thought there was. So I went back and checked out another Kalas record from the library, and it was more or less the same thing, and I just thought, ew! But then I eventually got to the C's in the vocal selections, and I had to listen to the Kalas records. I had to, because that was my goal for the summer. So the first one I checked out was Great Heroines from French Operas or whatever it was called, on angel. And I turned it on, and the first thing on there was J'ai perdu mon heureux dix. I've told this story before on the podcast, so if you've heard it before, you can just fast forward a little bit. I could not believe my ears. Suddenly, it all clicked into place. Oh my god, I nearly lost my mind. And from then on, I was a Kalas convert. I have also told numerous times the story of how I found out that Maria had died. September 16th, 1977. It was, I think, the beginning of football season or something like this, and I played tuba in the pep band that performed at intermissions. This was the only time I ever willingly went to football games, ever. So we did our performance, and after the show was over, of course, I had my driver license by then, and I drove home. My mother and father were sitting around in the living room, having their evening beer, as they did every single night. And my mother looked up from the newspaper, and she said, Oh, you'll never guess who died today. And I stopped dead in my tracks. Because I knew. I intuited it. Maybe it was something about the way she said it. She knew that I had recently begun a Kalas fixation, and I just said, Kalas. And she goes, oh, did you hear it on the radio? I said, no, no. You mean she died? And she said, well, yes, it's right here in the paper. Oh, my God. I was bereft, as only an unhappy, closeted gay boy in the Midwest could possibly be. The next day we had a rather gruesome meeting of some sort of evangelical group for Lutheran teens. I won't even go into the details of that. But I wore black to the gathering, and all of the youngsters there, my fellow (laughs) Christian Lutheran brethren and sisteren, made merciless fun of me. But it was not a joke. It was not a joke. I was inconsolable. Even so, I had not yet heard any live Kalas recordings, but I remember quite well the first time that I did. I was back on Christmas break from my first semester at college, and my beloved English teacher invited me over for dinner with a group of very interesting people, including her daughter-in-law who was, at the time, a well-known opera singer who had sung at City Opera and who would go on to sing also at the Met. And daughter-in-law had given her mother-in-law for Christmas a recording of the Berlin Lucia, in which Kala sang the role of Lucia with colleagues from La Scala and Herbert von Karajan, who had conducted it at La Scala with the same cast, reappeared on the podium for this performance in which he conducted the Rias Orchester Berlin. And because I expressed curiosity in hearing it, my hosts very kindly put the record on the turntable. And that was the beginning of the end. (laughs) I lost my mind. I was so stunned that another of the guests made a joke about perhaps leaving me alone for a moment or something like that. But I found it off-color, and I was rather shocked, as only a closeted gay boy from the Midwest could be. But that recording was another landmark on my Kalas journey. And here is an excerpt from The Mad Scene, in which I reveled on that December evening in... Well, let's just say it was a long time ago. As I was preparing this episode, I was actually speaking to David about the importance of Kalas, and he said something that is no news to anyone, perhaps, but just the fact that She revolutionized bel canto singing, because never did she sing a phrase that was not infused with some particular kind of meaning. And you hear that so clearly on this recording of Lucia. Perhaps Maria's greatest bel canto achievement was the title role in Bellini's Norma, which she sang, I think, for about 15 years, which was, in fact, the length and breadth of her career. Her last assumption of the role in Paris in 1965 is something that is incredibly touching to listen to, but I'm going to offer you instead an excerpt from a performance that is so crucial to the Kalas legend, and that is her performance at Covent Garden in the fall of 1952. This is even earlier than the Scala Macbeth, and I just wish the sound were better because it is a monumental achievement. In the final scene, Norma has two different heartbreaking moments. And in one of them she addresses Polione, and in another she goes to her father, Oroveso, who is the chief priest of the Druids, and tells him that she has borne two children of Polione, and she begs him not to let them be sacrificed because of her acts of betrayal. This time on the podium she was led by that venerable Italian maestro Vittorio Gui, and the Oroveso on this occasion, I would particularly like to point out, was the Italian bass Giacomo Vaghi. Now, Oroveso is not an important role, it's really a secondary part, but I think that he brings such a kaleidoscope of emotions to a relatively thankless part that I can only imagine that he was deeply inspired. By Collis' own display of that full range of emotion and expression. considers slaughtering her children as an act of vengeance against Poglione, the Roman general, her lover, who has betrayed her. But she refrains from doing so. But in Cherubini's Medea, the title character does the unthinkable and slaughters her two children by an equally ungrateful lover, Gazzone. Medea was a role... Again, central to Collis' legend. And she performed in, well, let's just say, a textually fucked up version of this opera that became the standard and is still being performed to this day. But never mind about that. This characterization was, again, one of Kahless's greatest, and I think I would be justified in saying that the most famous of her extant live performances comes from Dallas in November 1958. Just that very day of the performance, Rudolf Bing had, as I mentioned, unceremoniously fired her from the Met because she did not want to sing one night Lady Macbeth, and the next night, Violetta. I think those were the two. And she responded in disdain, saying the voice is not an elevator, and he responded, like the schmuck that he was, by firing her. By the way, to uh, expand upon this idea of Bing being a schmuck, I just attended this week a screening of the Regina Resnick documentary produced by her son. And Resnick was another singer, and there were many, who suffered under Bing's iron-handed and tone-deaf, one might add, rule. So these two great artists may not have been exceptional in that regard, but it didn't keep them from being great singers elsewhere in the world. And they did, both of them, also have their moments of triumph at the Met. But this Medea in Dallas was not one of them. In fact, Callas never sang Medea at the Met. Callas, however, was so inflamed by being fired by Bing that she gave probably the most incendiary performance she ever gave of Medea on that occasion in Dallas. And this is the duet... With Jazzone, which ends the first act of the opera, Nemici Senza Cor. Her Jazzone on this occasion, as he was to be in so many of her Medea performances, is the great Canadian dramatic tenor, John Vickers. And just a word about John Vickers. I've done a full tribute to him a couple years ago in a mini series I did on great Canadian singers, and he is one of the very few tenors who could match Kalas dramatically, and I believe it was at Covent Garden that they first worked together in Medea, and she insisted that from then on he always be her Giazone, as he is on this occasion, and again, he matches her blow for blow.
1: Hazon, Grand Dolor, take a star. Hutu, Hatar, Grand Dolor, take a star. I can't Grand Dolor, take a star.
0: After all these years, Callas still reigns supreme when people think and talk about opera. I have been reading and listening to the most incredibly knowledgeable and erudite and perceptive assessments of Callas's contribution from so many of my esteemed colleagues, and I have nothing comparable to offer All I have is my love for her and her as my shining beacon of an artistic example. But maybe that's enough. Her recordings, live and studio, have been remastered in both revelatory and disappointing audio rehabilitations. There are also a lot of people cashing in on her legend these days, that I'm much less partial to, these hologram concerts of quote-unquote Maria in quote-unquote concert, a forthcoming biopic that sounds hopelessly miscast, colorized versions of footage in which she appears, you know, stuff that I have much less interest in and time for. Even more than a few years ago, her voice was used in what some people consider to be an iconic scene in the film Philadelphia. Now here's a controversial opinion of mine that I'm just going to leave on the cutting room floor. I don't like that movie. I don't like the Academy Award-winning performance of the lead actor, I think that Callas's voice in that recording of La Mamma Morta is exceptional, but I don't think that the people involved in the making of the film had any idea why it was so extraordinary. That's all I'll say about it. Anyway, the role of Maddalena in Andrea Chenier is not one that Cala sang frequently. In fact, she only sang it, I believe, once, and it was because someone or other, maybe it was Mario del Monaco, wanted to perform a different opera rather than the one that was scheduled. It was probably Norma. I'm not even looking up the details. But Callas acquiesced and learned the role of Maddalena di Quagny specifically for those performances, which took place in the winter of 1955. Now, I love her studio recording of La Mamma Morta, but I think the live recording captured on the 6th of January 1955 is even more extraordinary. I want to just make an observance here. Callas was not your typical... Italian soprano. She had a multicolored, multi-nuanced voice, and while she may not have had the refulgence of sound that one might have associated with a role such as Maddalena, she had that insight into character that was hers and hers alone. And that's what we hear in this extraordinary recording, in which she is led on the podium by Antonino Votto, who conducted so many of her performances, both at La Scala and elsewhere, and who is, for some reason, assessed by people supposedly in the know as a hack. But I don't think so. He knew how this music moved. He knew how to make it sing. He knew how to present the singers at their very best. He was, I think, an unsung maestro of that era. I can't even remember when exactly it was, on what cruise, in what year, that Callas first crossed paths with Aristotle Onassis. You know, I don't give a flying fuck about Onassis. I'm sorry. He was a schmuck, and he may have been the love of her life, but boy, she deserved better. And I'm not going to even go into all of that, except to say that I remember reading that on that cruise, she took along the score of Bellini's La Straniera and never even cracked it open. And from then on, her live opera performances became few and far between. And from, I would say, about 1959 through the end of her performing career, she sang very, very few live, staged, operatic performances. So when she made a return to the Met in the early spring of 1965, this was an event simply without parallel, maybe even in the history of opera. My dear friend Ira Siff was a guest of mine on the podcast in its very first year. And he spoke so lovingly and so intensely about being present at not one, but two of those performances. I will put a link in the show notes to that interview slash episode, because it is a vital piece of gay history. And I'm so honored that he shared it with me, and that I was able to share it with my listeners. For now, all I'm going to play for you are the moments following Collis's entrance in Act 1, on the 19th of March, 1965, directly on the heels of a nearly four-minute ovation. Some intrepid pirate was there in the audience and made a fairly decent-sounding recording. How lucky we are to have these recordings, I might add. And this one has been remastered to an extent that I would not have thought possible. All of this stuff is sonically compromised, but considering, it sounds pretty darn good to my ears, and here are Callas, with her Cavaradossi, Franco Corelli, a frequent colleague and sometime adversary, but here both of them are exceptional. Now, Bing went on the record as saying, oh, she wasn't in very good voice, but she was great anyway. And Ira also commented that her voice appeared to be severely diminished in quality and range and volume. But in spite of that, the genius, the way that she sings every little grace note, it's not something to be believed. And furthermore, it's not something that has ever been matched or certainly not equaled in the history of opera. And I'm sorry, if this comes off as a hagiography, so be it. We are saluting La Divina here, and I'm allowed to be a little opera queenie if I want to be. Callas gave very few performances after that met appearance. I think there was one final Tosca or two at Covent Garden, and after that, near silence. Promises of her coming back via recordings, even staged performances were rumored to be happening, but precious little came to fruition, until, I'll say it, the ill-fated concert tour with Giuseppe di Stefano, in the 1973-74 concert season. The two singers had gone into the recording studio, I believe it was in 1972, and attempted to record some duet material with orchestra, but it was never officially released. And frankly, when one listens to these recordings today, because of course now, via the internet, anything is accessible, one hears, yeah, most of them would have been better off simply not seeing the light of day. Everyone talks about how Collis' voice had failed, and I have very specific thoughts about that. But first of all, I want to play a prime example to refute that point of view. This is Collis' live appearance in Boston on the 27th of February, 1974. Now, my ex was in school in Boston and he was at this performance. This was exceptional because Di Stefano withdrew from the performance, and so Callas appeared in her portion, not in duet, but only singing arias, and the first thing she sang on the program was Suicidio. She must have been terrified, but what a performance this is! I don't care that she takes it down a step or a half step. I think it's a whole step, but who cares? She has all of the color that she once had. The low range is absolutely kamikaze, as she always was in the role of Joconda, and she gives and she gives a performance that I would say other than the transposition. Makes no compromises. The pianist on this occasion, by the way, was Robert Sutherland, and we will hear him again in the next selection. One of Collis's most famous late recordings was of the title role of Carmen. This was a controversial impersonation, and there was another, by the way, very controversial impersonation right around the same time by another singer who never portrayed the complete role on stage, and that's Leontine Price. Now, I love Leontine. You all know how much I love her. And David is a huge fan of her Carmen recording. I am not, and I will leave it at that. I'm also not that crazy about Calas's Carmen, but I did mention it just a few weeks ago on my Robert Massard episode, because he is her Escamillo. Calas on that final tour, often pulled out the Habanera to sing for her audiences, often as an encore. And here is a recording from Montreal in May 1974, almost three months after the Suicidio in Boston, in which she is... A fascinating Carmen. She's in very good voice. And her impersonation. Wow, I just want to say I'm not a big fan of L'amour est un oiseau rebelle. But she makes me listen. And she tells me a lot about who Carmen is in her estimation. And I'm fascinated and pulled in, in spite of myself.
1: What do you do today?
0: close to matching Callas' contribution. And one of them is the late Renata Scotto. And this week I am presenting a bonus episode for my Patreon supporters, which features Scotto singing a repertoire that is actually pretty far removed from Callas. That is parlor Songs by Gioacchino Rossini. One thing that Scotto had that Callas never really had was cuteness. And adorability. Both of these traits are in delightful evidence over the course of this episode, which features both live and studio recordings by Scotto, recorded over the course of 20 years, from 1964 to 1984. I don't have new Patreon supporters to welcome this week, but I do want to say that I always welcome your financial contributions. It allows me to continue to produce the podcast. So, if you are inspired for any reason to do so, maybe you'd like to partake of the now nearly 90 bonus episodes that I have published including this Scotto sings Rossini one. Then go, please, to patreon.com slash countermelody, and you can make a monthly or a yearly contribution to the care and upkeep of this podcast, which I produce with great love.
1: And now once again back to our regularly scheduled programming.
0: Here is another way in which Maria Callas directly touched my life. It has been ascertained posthumously, that she most likely suffered from a degenerative disease called dermatomyositis. Now, my father also suffered from this disease. It's a degenerative disease of the skin, muscles, and connective tissue. And if she also suffered with this, as she did from heart disease and other ailments, One can only remark upon the superhuman effort that it took her to continue to work on her voice. There were rumors, I didn't know about this, I just found this out, that there was a rumor that she was going to reappear on the operatic stage in the year 1978 as Charlotte in Vertier. Imagine what that would have been like. She did sometimes sing Charlotte's letter scene in those final concerts, and she also recorded quite memorably in the year 1963 on her second French opera aria's album, that selfsame letter scene. I have two examples to indicate to you the extent to which Callas was able, in spite of her ailment, to rework her voice, she returned to her old teacher, Elvira de Hidalgo, who helped her reconstruct her technique and her voice. Alas, by the time she went on that tour with Di Stefano, a combination of her physical ailment and her nerves affected many of those performances, and there were only rare flashes of her former brilliance. But even so, we've just heard two of them, yeah, so it may have been sporadic, but for those who loved her and wanted to see her, it was enough. There is a recorded excerpt of her live in Paris the year before her death, rehearsing Beethoven's Aperfido with the pianist and conductor Jeffrey Tate. Now, Callas made some pretty dicey recordings for EMI in the early 60s, and probably, in my opinion, one of the worst of these was a recording of Beethoven's A Perfido, which is a very, very difficult aria. And though the recorded quality of this final recording of Callas' is simply, shall we just say, not good, It still gives us an opportunity to hear how Kalas was reconfiguring, rebuilding her voice. Calas also continued to record, even after her performing career was more or less over. I mentioned the ill-fated 1972 recording sessions for Philips Records with Di Stefano, but a few years before that, Calas reunited with her colleague Nicola Ricciño in the recording studio, where they laid down tracks for what was hoped to be a third volume of Verdi opera arias. Those recordings never saw the light of day during her life. Actually, some of them were reissued, I think again in the year 1972 or 73, when she taught her master classes at Juilliard but I'm not sure there are any, actually, from the 1969 sessions on there. I have not studied it closely enough to be able to say. But there is, on the interwebs, on YouTube, a recording of her singing Arrigo, a parli a un core, an aria to which she returned time and time again in the recording studio from the year 1960 through her last With This Aria in March 1969 and it is from these sessions that I present to you a portion of her recording of Arrigo. I included one of the sort of cracked high notes as she attempts the very difficult chromatic downward scale, because almost immediately after this, she sings an absolutely stunning two-and-a-half octave chromatic Descent that most singers of this role simplify because it's just too damn hard to sing and yet you hear even in march of 1969 how she still could do this imagine the willpower that this must have taken okay i'm gonna stop because this to me is one of the most moving audio examples on this entire episode This has been a long episode, I couldn't help myself, and I hope that you have enjoyed being on this admittedly gushy tribute. But honestly, when is the last time you have encountered singing of this magnitude? Everyone has their favorite Kalas moments. For many people, her assumption of the title role of Donizetti's Anna Bolena was her greatest moment. I was not prone to agree with that until I really listened this week to the live recording that Thank Our Lucky Stars is still extant. This took place on the 14th of April, 1957. To my ears, she is at her absolute expressive peak. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that I was thinking about calling this episode The Power of the Trill nowhere is that in better evidence than in this recording of two snippets from anna's final mad scene first anna sings in her semi-delirium of her desire to return to the childhood castle where she once knew peace and joy and love The way that Kalas sings passages of vocal filigree. If you don't find yourself in tears, I think you better stick a pin into yourself to make sure that you're actually still alive. (laughs) Okay, that's all I have to say about that. And then the sounds of trumpets and drums waken her from that reverie. And she is told that Henry is just about to marry her rival and former serving woman, Giovanna Seymour, and she unleashes a torrent of suppressed rage as she invokes a rather freighted kind of forgiveness on this iniquitous couple. In these performances, she was joined by another great Italian maestro, Gianandrea Gavazzini. The other singers whom we hear merely in the background in this scene are Gabriella Carturan, as Smiton Gianni Raimondi, as Percy, and as Rochefort, Basso Plinio Clabassi. the memory of Maria Callas, also in your hearts. I'm Daniel Guntlaff, La Divina Per Sempre.